This is Hunting Land, a podcast for landowners and land hunters with how-tos for habitat management and land investment. If you own, manage, or dream of owning land, this is the podcast for you. I'm here today with my co-host, Joe Baia. Joe, who's bringing us the show this week? Clint, this week's show is brought to us by the Quality Deer Management Association. Hunting season is right around the corner, and if you're in need of hunting liability insurance, consider the QDMA. They're dedicated to providing the broadest coverage available, including member-to-member coverage, guest coverage, and coverage for many higher-risk activities involving tree stands, ATVs, and firearms. Many other policies contain hidden exclusions for these activities. In addition to your hunting liability insurance, it includes a complimentary QDMA membership, a $35 value for the primary policyholder and any additionally insured landowners. This program is underwritten by Lloyd's of London, one of the world's oldest and most respected insurance companies. All claims are handled in the U.S. through Outdoor Underwriters, Inc., a team with more than 20 years of experience with hunting land liability insurance. For more information, check out QDMA.com hunt slash hunting liability insurance. Clint, I am really excited about today's show and today's guest. We've got Dr. Grant Woods on the show with us today. He's a wildlife biologist who specializes in researching and managing white-tailed deer, and he's been doing it for decades. His work on the Proving Grounds is widely documented on his weekly web show, Growing Deer TV. And Grant is going to share with us today what it takes to get started and succeed with no-till food plots. Clint, have you had any experience with no-till or are you still breaking the ground? I'm still breaking the ground. I'm, I'm hoping I can learn a lot today to, to get out of that rut. Well, we got a lot of ground to cover, so let's get right into it. Grant, welcome to Hunting Land. Joe and Clint, thanks for having me, guys. Well, we're excited to talk with you a little bit today, um, probably a lot today about no-till food plots. I've, I've seen a, a lot of the content you produce over there at Growing Deer TV on the subject, and we really want to go through first, you know, why, why do we want to no-till? Before we do that though, tell me a little bit about growing deer. Hey, glad to. So real candidly, many years ago, I I travel a lot as a consulting biologist and I came home and the phone rang and my daughter said, daddy, she was young at the time. And I was traveling so much. She was conditioned to knowing me through a telephone call and that broke my heart. A lot of dads can relate to that. So I said, well, I got to come up another way to make a living. So with not a lot of knowledge and zero experience, we started growing deer. It's an online web show before web shows were popular at all. And just said, I wonder if I give away the information for free that I charge people for, you know, if people would watch. And that was over 10 years ago. We've made a new show every week, 52 weeks a year uh, for that 10 plus years and never had a repeat episode. Never missed a week. My wife's birthday, Christmas, whatever, never missed a week. And and here we go. So we just film what we're doing that week. We don't have an agenda. Just, you know, if it's raining or we're planting or hunting or whatever, that's what we film. And people have responded. It's done well. So, you know, you can just go to Growing Deer, Google it, and you'll find it on many different sources. A lot of people like to watch on the big screen TV through Roku or Apple or any of those apps. That's an impressive track record coming from a, a guy who's, we, we produce this podcast and another podcast weekly. And uh, it's a lot of daggum work to be that consistent. And that's not video and a thing. So I can only imagine what goes into creating that amount of content on that consistent of a basis. It's easy for me. It may be tough on the editors and, and those <laughs> folks, but for me, I, I, I just do what I'm doing. I mean, you know, whether we're hunting or planting or prescribed fire or, you know, whatever it is, I just do what I'm doing. And, and now there's a couple of camera guys out there tagging along, but I just do what I'm doing. So it's really not as bad as a lot of people think. Well, one of the things you've covered extensively on your channel, and, and I've had the pleasure of, of learning from you, is the subject of no-till food plots. And you have instituted and done a lot of research on your property there in, on the subject. So we want to talk specifically about that today. We're, we're right around the corner from, from the big planning season, you know, fall food plots here in the South. And I want to learn if it's reasonable to get into it this fall, and if not, how we can uh, set ourselves up to start. So to begin, tell me why. I mean, what what is the major benefits of no-till planning? Okay, so we'll start maybe a touch earlier than that. My, my wife, Trace, and I were living in, uh, in South Carolina. We had 13 acres and just wanted a, a bit more land and 
And I'm from the Missouri Ozarks here and come back to visit, found an old ranch for sale and cheaper than anything we could find in, in the South, basically. So we bought it. And it's a rock pile. Many of your listeners, I'm sure, have been to Branson, Missouri. And when they drive through, people always say, I can't believe all the rocks here. The road cuts through rocks or trees growing out of a rock or whatever. It's really, really, really rocky here. And there really wasn't much of an opportunity to disc. You would just be scratching metal on top rocks. So I rented the county's no-till drill to put in my first food plots. And it was literally so rocky. Sometimes I would see the seed laying on top of the ground. That's where I knew to space over the drill for the next pass, literally. I mean, literally. <laughs> but, you know, the first year or two of doing that, and I wasn't thinking improving soil or any of the stuff I think about now. I was just trying to get, you know, attract some deer out in the open and plant some food plots. And, and I started noticing a little bit of organic matter or maybe even burying the seed a little bit. And I said, gosh, so I started thinking more about it. And I started thinking about, Where's the greatest soil on the planet? And that's the great prairie and how that was developed and whatnot. And that led me to a really long-term study on no-tilling and seeking out those guys that knew more about it than me. And so what I've found is every time you disc, and this is going to ruffle a few feathers, but just this is like your medicine. You just kind of take it, suck it down, and get better. Every time you disc, every time you disturb the soil, you have decreased the soil quality, period. There are no exceptions. So... Do I still have friends at disc? Yes. Don't think I'm saying anything bad. We disc. We got small food plots. We don't disc here, but I got buddies that do or whatever. But there is a better way. So when you disc, you break down the pores that insects, let's just say earthworms, there's thousands of them, but earthworms people know. You break down the pores they develop to allow air and water in the soil. And you also break down all the root channels that the previous crop developed. And the successful roots, the one that grew and did pretty well, they obviously found nutrients or water. Or, you know, they were successful for a reason. And you turn all that up and level the playing field over and over and over. And, and one thing that will be really important in this discussion, we all need to understand that the air we breathe over every acre on the planet is a, more than 75% nitrogen. And when we disc, nitrogen escapes the soil and goes up to the air, volatilizes, stuff like that. But we could, nitrogen is the most expensive of the fertilizers. We can keep a bunch of that in the soil. I haven't paid for nitrogen in, in many, many years. Zero. I mean, zero nitrogen. Grow big bucks, grow great crops. I haven't paid for any fertilizer, period. So when we disc, we're breaking down that natural process. Because just think about it. You know, there were 60 million buffalo across the Great Plains. They're growing to a ton each. The crops, as Lewis and Clark went through, were crops being native grasses and forbs overhead high, and there was no disking, no fertilization, no lime. So we know soil can take care of itself, and we can do it in a small food plot with the proper rotation and, and the proper techniques, and disking is absolutely not part of that. So what I'm hearing you say is, I mean, number one, you're you're going to be reducing the need for inputs over time, whether that's yes. you know fertilizer so what about pH? Does it, does it help with the pH of the soil or are you still having to amend with lime? Yeah, I, I have not added any lime or fertilizer period of any kind. No exceptions, no little gimmicks or, you know, liquids or whatever. The last I used period on a small plot was six years ago and some of my plots eight, nine years ago. And right now in, in the Ozark Mountains, Rocky Mountains, Missouri, I have soybeans. I'm six foot one and they're hitting me on the chin. Literally, wow. literally. Not in every field. Some fields are smaller and the deer browse them down more. But my little bigger plot, I literally, I mean, I, I see the tips of antlers sticking out the top. I don't see deer, which is wonderful right now. And then, of course, they eat the beans down or they get cold and you see the whole deer, no problem. So, yes, you can, the soil can heal itself. I have friends in the south on hard red clay or sandy soil. They're using this technique. We call it the buffalo system because it replicates buffalo and the native prairie and kind of how God built soils to act that are building black organic topsoil on top of red clay or sand, and they're not adding any lime. So decomposing vegetation. Think about buffalo going through a prairie and trampling down vegetation. You know, they move through in masses. Pretty much ate everything in sight, and what they didn't eat, they trampled it down. And that was creating the fertilizer, right? That Now they've got this mulch layer there. We all think about mulch in a garden or flower bed, and it's breaking down. Little bitty single-cell organisms are just breaking that down, literally, and, and what they poop out, to be candid, is the world's best fertilizer. There is none better. So let's just 
I don't want to go too far, but let's do this. Let's just talk about the principles of what we're doing here. Just really quick, just four principles about what we're doing, then we'll explain why it works so well. First off, we never want to disturb the soil. We don't want to till the soil. We want something growing as many days out of the year as possible. So, you know, down on the coast, that may be all the days. Uh, here where I live, we, you know, we may get below zero a few days out of the year, and you obviously don't have much growing. Uh, we want a diversity of crops. Now, I may have a pure soybean stand in the summer, but my fall food crop blend or my fall cover crop, if you will, may have six, seven, eight, nine, ten different things blended in there. It's got some legumes like some clovers and some big grasses, which are real high in carbon. We'll talk about that in a minute, like cereal rye or wheat or oats. And then some broad leaves like a brassica, a turnip, or a rape, or a radish, or something like that. I'm going to have a blend of stuff, not a monoculture. So I'm just like the Great Prairie. The Great Prairie would have over 150 different species per acre, usually. God didn't create monocultures. If you think about native habitat, wherever you are, it's not a monoculture. And there's a big reason why. And so we're never disturbing soil. we got something growing as many days out of the year. We've got a variety of plants growing. Those three are really important. And the fourth one is just as important is that we want those roots to always be feeding the nutrients. So that kind of goes with a variety of plants and something growing as many days out of year. These principles will improve soil anywhere. The, The one thing we have in common, you may get like you guys get way more rain than we do. On a good year, we get about 40 inches of rain. And, you know, you don't always get rain when you want it anywhere, right? You get too much or not enough. But Year round, we're going to get about 40. You guys are going to get way more than that. Some places over in South Carolina get 70, 80. Some places where I work out in western Kansas and places like that get 12. And that includes snow. And we're still growing great crops. There's guys out there growing 200 bushel corn on 16 inches of rain a year and not adding any fertilizer. So the system absolutely works. That's not arguable. The system works. It's whether you can, in your situation, apply it or not. So those are the principles of soil health. Well, you mentioned the rainfall here, you know, we get, well, you're exactly right. Uh, we get a lot more rain, but a lot of times that rain comes in the form of, you know, five inch downpours in an, in an hour yeah. in the afternoon. So our totals look real good, but it, it all comes at once a lot of times. So, yeah. So let's just address that because moisture is the most important thing to a crop. I mean, more important than nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, whatever moisture is the limiting factor, right? And then no matter what you've done, we've all had this, uh, I lived in South for a long time. I schooled at George and Clemson and man, I'd get out there and borrow my neighbor's tractor and his disc and I'd work up the plot good and I'd add all the NPNK and lime and maybe some herbicide to kill weeds or whatever. And I think, man, I got this great and I plant my seed and it doesn't rain. And that red clay just sets there. I mean, nothing happens. I don't care how many inputs you put in it. If you don't have moisture, nothing happens. So the best way to conserve moisture is again, have a mulch, have that soil covered. And that can reduce soil moisture loss by, you know, close to 70, 80, 90% for a couple of reasons. A, when the sun is hitting the soil, it gets much warmer. And I want you to think about this. Let's just think about it's an 85 degree day, right? Not hot, just pretty nice day outside. But the sun is shining and you get a black truck and you put your hand on that black truck. It's way hotter, isn't it? Just like burn oh, yeah. your hand hot. Oh, yeah. Okay. So we've done this. I wish we were on Skype or something visual here, but. I live out in the country. My internet is so slow, that's not possible. But I have taken a a handheld infrared pistol that's a thermometer, super accurate. You know, this is like a $200 thing, not a $12 thing you take your kid's temperature with. And I can point it at whatever, and it tells me the surface temperature. So when I put it on top of the mulch, that would be last year's crop, the, the duff laying on the ground, if you will. The surface of that probably be on a real sunny day, high 80s, low 90s, put on the heat outside. If my tractor tires maybe push that mulch out away, which this is true example I have with this all in seminars I use, and I just point that at the dirt. The darker the dirt, of course, the warmer it'll be, but it's not uncommon for that to be 120 to 135, literally. And you say, how can that be? It's only 85 degrees. Thing Again, go back to that black pickup mm-hmm. or the black interior of your truck. But when I test the soil, I just... I rake away that inch or two of mulch. And as soon as I rake it away, I point my, my thermometer gun at it. It'd be 85, 84, or in the high 70s. Well, it turns out that up to about 80, soil temperature up to about 80 has zero moisture loss through evaporation. I'm saving 100% of what the rain I got a month or two ago. 
that was going to be my next question is exactly exactly that why is that keeping that soil temperature down so important and is that it? I mean, it, it just prevents that, that evaporation. Well, there's, two th- there's two reasons. There's two reasons. Uh, I'm, I'm conserving inches, not not quarter inches, inches of moisture. I, so I could get that big five-inch rain, and instead of it evaporating out in a couple of weeks or less, I can conserve it. That's how it was built to work. And second, when my temperatures get really hot, I kill soil microbes. So when we say bacteria, microbes, fungus, somewhere, everyone goes, ooh, because we've been trained. That those are bad, right? Right. But here's the reality: if you saw a scent spray or whatever in hunter terms that said it kills 100% of the bacteria, please never put that on your body because you would die within minutes. Obviously, the advertising is not true. You would die within minutes because most of the bacteria on the planet are beneficial. We worry about the bad ones, maybe the flu virus or you know bacteria's, but most of them are good, and that's true in the soil. There's a few bad ones. There's about, literally by science, there's about 1,700 good ones to one bad one. And those good ones bring nutrients to plants and help those plants defend against pests and disease. But when we let that soil get to 130 degrees, it it kills them all. So by keeping that soil covered, we conserve moisture and we provide a great habitat for these very beneficial bacteria to live and thrive. And, and this is out there for people just knew this, but it's absolutely true. There's great research. You can go to Google, Dr. Google, and find all this stuff. Everything I'm saying, you can go to Google and confirm. But when you get really healthy soil, what will happen is, let's say, you you know, you got soybeans. And an aphid comes in one side of the field and starts wearing out some of those plants. You're not going to get there quick enough to react. Don't worry. The plant's got a plan. And those plants that are being hurt, they will put out a pheromone. And it will go to the other plants that says, put out so-and-so chemical because I'm under attack. Put your shield up, boys. It's just like saying the enemy's coming, the enemy's coming. And those plants will release that pheromone and will take care of that invasion of that pest if they're healthy. That doesn't happen in most crop fields because, you know, you, you drive through, you know, the Black Belt, Alabama or Illinois, these places in the winter. You kind of wonder how deer lives because they're all tilled and dish laying there bare. And the soil is naked, either hot or cold, exposed to erosion, all these negatives that really decrease soil quality. So again, when you get that mulch on there, you get the big rain, not only are you conserving that moisture, but there's no erosion. When I say no erosion, I mean none. So my food plots are not like South Alabama. I'm very blessed. My wife and I own over 2,000 acres, 95 of which is flat enough to get on and make a food plot if you don't count the two times we've tipped over. (laughs) <laughs> That's how steep my food plots are, literally. Well, we don't have that problem here in the South. Uh, no. Pretty much the, but the I have opposite the potential of that. for erosion. What I'm saying is I have great potential for erosion, and it's not happening. I'm, I'm actually building soil. When I say I'm building soil, I like to put that in scale. Now, I was taught, this is all relatively new science, because, you know, when I was in school and had soil classes, whatever, I was taught it took about a 1,000 years to build an inch of soil. And that is true under conventional ways, rocks breaking down, blah, 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 blah. Think about the buffalo now. When you're growing a really good crop and you terminate it either through herbicide or I use a crimper. A crimper is a roller with blades on it. And there's a reason why it has blades. It's not just a flat roller and it's not a cultipacker. It's a crimper. That's my buffalo. That's my steel buffalo, if you will. It does everything the buffalo does except urinate and defecate as it goes across the field. I'm working on that, but it it doesn't do that yet. (laughs) So I've got the ground covered either by growing vegetation or that crop I've crimped down to replicate what the buffalo did when they ran across the prairie. My ground is never bare. I've got something on there all the time. So the temperature stay, it doesn't get too cold, right? It doesn't get cold in the winter. It doesn't get as cold. I get more growing days out of year. It doesn't get too hot. And I conserve moisture, and that allows all these beneficial microbes to grow, and the microbes will balance the pH and provide fertilizer. Because remember, you know, buffalo and elk got really big before we ever started spreading fertilizer. Grant, there's a t- obviously a ton of benefits to no-till. Are there any cons? I mean, you've come f- from disc in the soil, and, and you've done it the other way uh, for a guy oh, that yeah. maybe wants to think about switching over. Or uh, maybe he's starting from ground zero and 
he's wanting to get started. Is there any cons to, to putting this into place? I, you know, I think like anything, like when I went, I'm 58 years old, so I've lived through this. When I went from a recurve to a compound, man, there were some cons. I wanted to just pull back and shoot because that's how I shot instinctively as a recurve. And you'd be whipping arrows all over your place and your neighbor's place too if you try to do that with a compound usually. So the con or one con would be one negative is there's a learning curve. Most of us, myself included, had disc for decades. So there's a bit of a learning curve. A no-till drill, uh, guys, they're, they're, a, they're a, you know, a piece of equipment you got to purchase, and, and I have, but I got to tell you, I started this whole process by renting a drill from the local NRCS office. And most NRCS offices throughout the Whitetails range rent no-till drills, amazingly inexpensive. Doggone it, it's, it's a good use of our tax dollars, I guess. It's better than some other uses of our tax dollars in my mind anyway. Now, what you find is when it's ideal planting conditions, it's a little tougher to get those rental units because everyone else is wanting to plant also. So most guys start by renting unit and kind of learning the system. And then they figure out, man, this is good, but it could be better if I could plant exactly when I want. So I'm going to purchase unit and a lot of guys form a co-op and maybe two or three neighbors get together and, and buy a no-till drill. So, you know, they can all get it within a reasonable amount of time. And, and I see those co-ops becoming of, of equipment use, not just deer co-ops. Okay, we're going to pass up said deer, but co-ops of equipment use may be as, if not more beneficial than just, hey, we, we've all agreed to pass up two-year-old bucks this year. That's a really great idea. And and that's always been one of the things that I see, you know, from, from the outside looking in is that that initial cost of that equipment, you know, it can be a non-starter for folks. So that's a great tip, you know, using the NRCS office. We talk about them a lot. There's a lot of, of landowner programs you can get access to there at your local NRCS office. That's a great resource that I wish more people would use. They, they do some great work. Grant, what can we expect in the first year? So you're talking about building that, building that soil, you know, that top-down decomposition. Yep. But if we're starting with bare dirt, you know, we've, we've, yep. we've got disked food plots that we've been disking for years. How long is it going to take us to get to that level that you're at where you're no longer have the need for the inputs? Great question. And I have clients every year to start this. So I'm pretty familiar with this. So, you know, you, you're in the South, you're not in the black belt, you, you got a, you know, a patch of red clay, or you got some sandy soil. You're saying, man, I want to improve this. I'm tired of paying all this. Let me walk you through what's going to happen now. You've disc it. You've probably got a great smooth seed bed. You're going to plant seed either by broadcasting, which is still a valid technique. Now, when people broadcast, the most common mistake I see is they don't use enough seed. When you broadcast, not all the seed is going to survive. Birds are going to eat it. You know, rodents are going to eat it. It's going to desiccate or dry out before it get a rain, all these things. So I like to plant 1.5 to two times the amount of seed that's recommended for drilling when I broadcast. Pretty simple stuff. So I'm going to establish that crop and I'm going to take a soil test. Soil tests are still critical, folks. You need to know what nutrients your crop needs. It will save you money. Uh, I use a, a quote-unquote expensive by soil test means you can get them for free from some soil cops, whatever. But I buy a $14 test because it tells me my organic matter, which is really important. We'll get over that in a second. Don't let me forget that. And all the trace are several to trace nutrients also. So I use an organic test from Waters Ag, I don't care what lab you use, but Waters Ag has been good for me. And I want to take that test the first year. And what I'm going to do is let's just say I'm being very facetious here, just for easy math. Uh, So please don't use this as a recommendation. This is just an easy example. It says I need 10 pounds of nitrogen, 10 pounds of phosphorus, and 10 pounds of potassium. That would never be correct, but uh, it's just easy math. I'm going to start weaning off that because those ingredients are very acidic to the soil. The more of those you put, the more lime you got to put. And they're so toxic, they kill these beneficial microbes. And some fields may be biologically dead. There's not much life out there. Don't worry, because on the edge of the field, at a fence row, a road ditch, a creek bank, timber, those microbes are there. We just got to give a better habitat, kind of build it, and they will come. So I'm going to get that soil test, says I need 10, 10, 10, and I'm going to put 7.5, 7.5, 7.5. I'm going to put three quarters of what the soil test says the first year. You can't go 
from being addicted. Plants get addicted to synthetic fertilizer. Remember, these fertilizers are synthetic. A lot of petroleum products built in fertilizer are used to make fertilizer. So they're addicted, just like I guess I'm addicted to ice cream. And it'd be harsh if my wife said, Grant, no more ice cream all at once. Well, I'd be probably grumpy for a while. And so were your plants. So I'm going to go down. I'm going to decrease it 25% the first year. And I'm still going to go a good crop. If you don't know this, over 50% of the fertilizer you use is wasted. It's not used by plant, period. Nitrogen is extremely volatile. The type of nitrogen you're putting down, it's not uncommon for 70, 80% of that to volatilize and the plants never see it. That's money you just threw in the creek, literally threw it in the creek. And by the way, that becomes a pollution once it does that. So you're literally throwing it in the creek. Phosphorus, 50% could be gone in a heartbeat. Potassium, very mobile, can do the same thing. So we're going to do 75%. We're going to grow, hopefully, a good crop, get ample rain. That soil's not going to hold much moisture, but we're going to start working on it. And that's our fall crop. Let's just say we're starting right now in the fall. Come spring, we may herbicide that crop. Let's say you don't own a crimper yet. I use a Goliath crimper. Maybe you don't own one yet. And there's not one for rent in your co-op or whatever. So I'm going to use a herbicide to terminate that crop. And most of our fall plots, you know, they're going to be a small grain, a clover, and a, a broadleaf. So glyphosate will terminate that crop. And I know there's all these fears about glyphosate. Folks, if glyphosate was as evil as the media said it was, we'd all be dead, period. Do not believe the EPA just released a very long, detailed study that said they found no sign of glyphosate causing cancer. Now, with that said, I want to use the least amount of herbicide I need to. It's expensive, and I want to be responsible to the planet. So I'm not against herbicide. I just want to use it responsibly. I just want to go out there and dump it out. I want to use the least amount I need to, but get the job done. So you're either going to crimp or you're going to use herbicide. But right before you do, if you're if you're crimping, I drill through that standing crop. I drill right through it. Just imagine the drill going through that standing crop like combing hair. It's so much easier to drill through a standing crop than a crop you've laid down. Think about trying to comb your hair sideways or something. And then if I've herbicide, which most guys are going to do the first year, I'm going to herbicide Roundup glyphosate is ground neutral. It's not going to kill seeds. It works on growing leaf surface area. By all means, do not mow and then spray. Because think about it, you went from these big leaf surface areas where the herbicide could act to a little stem. And you won't get a very good kill because there's so small a surface area for the, the herbicide to hit. So I'm going to spray the crop. I'm going to do that when the soil temperature is about 50 degrees. And almost all states have a website that's county by county. And it will say the soil temperature this morning at 9 a.m., two inches deep, was X. And the reason at 9 a.m., soil cools all night long. The sun's not heating up and it cools, cools, cools. And by about 9 a.m., the sun's high enough to start warming it up. So that's a critical time of day. And it varies depending on clouds, whatnot, but it's not that much. Soil temperature would be much different than air temperature. And most plants, like corn, you can plant a little cooler. Soybeans need to be about 55, 60 degrees. Clover, you can plant cooler, depending on what you're planting. And then I'm going after I spray it, I'm going to broadcast right into that standing crop. And this is critical if you're using the broadcast method. You're going to broadcast right before, like hours or a day, not two weeks, a rain. The weatherman is not lying. There's an 80% chance rain, not a 50, an 80% chance rain, a good rain, like a half inch or more, or during a rain. If I got a small plot, oftentimes I just go out there, I wait, and I go throw my seed right in the rain. And the rain will help push that seed through the vegetation and make sure it gets soil contact. Seed will germinate. We've all probably planted some small grains, some wheat or rye, and spilled some in the back of our truck, and it rains and it germinates, right? But it dies because there's no soil for it to get nutrients from. So seed that's not touching soil, maybe it's hung up on vegetation just a half inch above the soil, will die when it germinates. It just can't get roots in the soil quick enough. So it's critical we get seed-to-soil contact, and that's where a no-till drill is perfect. It's making a little slice right through that vegetation, depositing the seed at the right depth at the right rate. It's vastly superior than other planting methods. You will get better stands and use less seed because most of it germinates and grows. Uh, but if you have to broadcast the first year to understand. If you've got a field that, let's say you're, you're trying to convert to this method and let's say your second mm-hmm. year, you start having some aggressive young saplings start to come in like what we'll see a lot of in our area, sweet gum or pine start to blow in and you're trying not to use herbicide. What size sapling 
can a crimper typically handle or or if not what is what's the next yeah crimper is not going to kill that sapling uh crimper which is again a roller with blades on it and about every eight inches and what it does it crimps literally crimps the circulatory system of a herbaceous plant it's not going to do that to a sweet gum most likely think about driving through the grass of your yard you may leave a tire track for a day or two but it's standing right back up right that's why flat rollers don't work and a crimper through the yard wouldn't kill grass either because crimpers work when best when plants are producing a seed head making seed and when plants are making seed they're very stressed they're putting all the resources into making that seed and you break that circulatory system, they'll be brown in two days. They're, they're gone with no herbicide. But crimping through, you know, wheat a foot and a half tall and hadn't started making the seed head yet, it'll stand right back up. Timing of crimping, and you got about a three-week window. You know, it starts making seed until the seed gets hard. you got a three or four or five-week window depending on where you are. The ideal time to crimp is when the seed is in the dough stage, i.e. you grab that wheat seed or oat seed, whatever, squeeze it, and moisture comes out. That's called the dough stage, and you're, you're nuke it if you crimp it at that time. But remember, herbicides, especially common herbicides like glyphosate, is way less damaging to the soil than disking. Way, way less. Way less. Disking is the ultimate, I'm going to kill this soil. Why a crimper and herbicide versus just using your bush hog? Why wouldn't you terminate the plant with your bush hog? I'm sure people have done this. If you take your saw and cut off a sweet gum to make a shooting lane, what happens? It sprouts back or you, uh, the logger comes in logs and doesn't treat the stumps with herbicide, they sprout back, or you mow your yard, that grass is growing back. Mowers just create a mess. They don't terminate. Makes sense. There's a few plants mowing will terminate, but most of them, people have been mowing clover for years, right? Clover crops, weeds keep on coming. You're not going to get rid of the weeds in a clover field by mowing. You're just setting them back. In a food plot, you need to terminate the competition. And a weed is anything that's competing with the crop you desire to grow. So, you know, ragweed, in a certain place is awesome deer food. Ragweed competing with your soybeans is not so good. So a weed is something competing for sunshine, moisture, nutrients with the preferred crop. And in a lot of cases, until you get this mulch mat, so when you disc, you're always going to bring new weed seeds to the surface. Always. Always. There are millions of seeds per square foot. Literally. I used to harvest a bunch of deer at Callaway Gardens because they were eating up about a million dollars of azaleas each year. Callaway is just on the west side of Atlanta way. It's a really popular resort. And, uh, and you know, this is years ago, so I said now, unbeknownst to a lot of people there from midnight to 4 a.m. in the morning, over the course of several years, we removed over a thousand deer off Callaway Gardens. <laughs> Legalized poaching, riding around at night with spotlights and suppressed weapons. You know, sounds fun, but then you got to clean all those deer. We donated them to a halfway house and whatever. So you, you shoot deer all night. That's the fun part. Then you gut and pull samples and prepare meat and get that ready to donate, go to bed, sleep all day, and do it again the next night. Anyway, in one golf course, they decided to let go for year two until they redid it. Now, golf courses are the ultimate herbicide, pesticide, insecticide place, right? No, no ag areas use as much herbicide and fungicide and insecticide as a golf course. They're major pollutants, folks. I mean, golf courses are major sources of pollutant, literally. So they just let the fairways go on this one course for a year. And I thought, well, you know, it's be okay. I was shocked. In just a couple of months, it was ragweed and dog fennel. This has been treated for 30 years, 30 years of treatment to keep weeds at bay. It's a golf course. It looked like it was Callaway Gardens. looked like a beautiful golf course. They let it go just a few months. It was a jungle of weeds, awesome deer habitat, a jungle of weeds. So you have to build up a mulch on top of the ground, and then the only seeds there that are going to grow through are the ones you're planting by making a slice through that mulch with a no-till drill. It's the ultimate weed control, and it won't happen the first time. It takes a while to build up that new organic matter on top, but it's the ultimate weed control. Let me take yeah. that one step further. That mulch is also the ultimate, best of all, think about the Great Prairies again, the buffalo, the best organic fertilizer. When you get going, you, you grew a good crop, man. You grew a fall crop and your cereal rye is literally five foot tall and you've got a bunch of annual clovers in there just thick as they can be and some turnips and whatnot. Man, I mean, it's just thick, right? you got tons of organic matter per acre. You let that big rye it gets to about those stage and you crimp it and you lay over it on my field. Sometimes it'd be four inch thick, like a four inch thick mat of hay. 
And you're thinking, man, I'm going to smother out all the grass. If that's in your yard, you'd be going, I'm going to smother out all the grass. Well, in the food plot, you just smothered out all the weeds. Now, mulch breaks down fastest when it's what? Moist, humid, wet, and warm. When do plants grow the best? When it's moist and warm. When it's dry or cool, plants are growing too quick. And my fertilizer be going to waste. But when it's dry and cool, my mulch is just sitting there not breaking down. I'm not wasting fertilizer. I get a little rain. The plants are going to grow a little bit. And I get a little bit of fertilizer release. That mulch decomposes a little bit. I get a lot of rain and it's warm. That mulch is going to break down much quicker, release more of its nutrients, and the plants are growing quicker. It's the ultimate organic perfect time release fertilizer, period. And you don't even have to go through all that USDA labeling to get it. You don't have to do anything. It's just there. It's suppressing weeds, conserving soil moisture, and fertilizing your crops on a perfect time basis. This will not happen the first year because you don't have much of a buildup. And when I say build a mulch base, I'll have stuff out there from the year before that's kind of broken down, soft. And by the way, that two-year-old mulch, you now it's not near as thick, right? It's not near as big as that first-year mulch, that second-year mulch. Well, that is the ultimate earthworm food. And let me just tell you, and I get some weird looks when I say this at a seminar, I quit being, you know, a food plot farmer trying to go antlers, literally. And I've made a career out of this, folks. I've been incorporated 30 years. I'm now, my food plots are to grow earthworms. Because earthworms, if you get about a dozen earthworms per square foot, you take a shovel out there, not on a real dry day, they're down too deep to dig up. But, you know, a spring day, there's some soil moisture or whatever, not right during the rain or something. Put a big old shovel down, you scoop up that rich dirt you now have. You should find a dozen. I've been doing this on time. So right now my food pots, I'll pull out about three dozen earthworms per shovel. They're aerating the soil perfectly, perfectly. They're tilling the soil perfectly. No tiller, no aerator, no turbo, this, latest, greatest, whatever, can do as good a job as earthworms. There's just no chance. Earthworms are defecating all the time. And if you've got a dozen earthworms out there doing their job, eating up old plants, old plants are fertilizer, right? Because they pulled nutrients out of the ground to grow that structure. They're eating that up, converting it to a form. That's perfectly available to plants. Now, you know, a lot of people understand this. When you put, let's just say, phosphorus on your ground, that's not available to plants. That has to convert through the soil to be in a form that's available to plants. Earthworms are making stuff perfectly available to plants, organic fertilizer. And if you've got about a dozen per square foot, you know, you're going to have more in some places, less than others, average about a dozen per square foot. Per that acre, you can get way over 100,000 pounds of new soil and new fertilizer in the form of their poop. Now so do this, guys, just go online, go to Stuff Mart. I call Stuff Mart any the big marts out there. Go to their garden apartment and see how much it costs you for one pound of vermiculture, which is earthworm castings, fancy word for earthworm poop. You're talking $15, $20 per pound, and you can get 100,000 pounds just for, by managing your, your plot right. You just paid for your no-till drill. In the lime savings, in the fertilizer savings, in the herbicide savings, over time, you have paid for your drill. Outside of the cost savings, from a nutritional standpoint for the folks that are trying to grow the bigger deer, do you see a substantial return on this approach versus traditional? Well, I'm in the Ozark Mountains. A lot of people come to Branson, actually about 9 million people a year as a tourist. No one comes here to deer hunt. I mean, it's rocky, shallow, poor soil, very rocky. My land happens to be split by county line about 50 50. I'm in Stone, named appropriately, and Taney counties. Stone and Taney County, Missouri. You can look this up. There's never been a Boone and Crockett recorded out of these counties. Now, maybe there's one killed, but back in the day, Pope and Young, Boone and Crockett were really popular. And if you killed something that registered, almost everyone registered. That was just what hunters used to do back in the day. And there's one Pope and Young, I think it's like 130 couple inches. We grow, grow and harvest multiple 140 150 our best deer on the ground taped out is 172 inches out of a county since records have been kept have one out of two counties counties are large in missouri 130 couple inch deer we're way way above the average way above the average i'm I'm getting a huge return out of this you mentioned the the cost savings with regards to you know reducing inputs but it sounds like from what you're saying that this also would get easier on your time. I mean, is it, does it become easier over time 
to oh yes the plant? yes yes we can manage more acres of food plots with less time because we're not making near as many paths across the field i mean anything about typical guy he disc or turns whatever he plows his field works the soil a couple of times right it's almost like therapy oh it looks pretty good but i think i'll make another round and every round you make degrades the soil more so and then you're going to drive a really heavy think about this you're putting two three tons of lime per acre and a lime truck most lime trucks hold about seven tons plus the weight of the truck on maybe six tires Think about the tremendous bulk density you just put on top of the field you thought you were working up. And, and by the way, when that truck rolls over or the tractor, either one, when you disc, you kill earthworms by the gazillia. You're cutting them in half. When you run that lime truck over or the fertilizer truck over, you're squishing all the earthworm hose and you're killing earthworms by the gazillions. I mean, you just are. And then you're going to plant. After you disc a couple of passes. You've limed a pass. You've fertilized a pass. You're going to plant. You're five passes into it, period. And you're just getting started. In the spring, we've got a standing crop out there. We will plant it with our no-till drill. We will crimp it, and we'll hunt deer over it that fall. In, in the fall, we will plant the fall crop. We, we grow soybeans primarily. If I have a really good field, that, you know, I've been doing this longer, and I have very little wheat pressure, I will mix in with my soybeans some sunflowers. A, I love to see them. My wife loves to see them. B, I like to dove hunt. Deer love to eat them, and sunflowers have a tremendous root mass, so they're adding more organic matter to my plot. The reason I plant a lot of blends, each different plant is better at extracting nutrients out of the soil. Each different plant releases, it's called exudates, just think about it, leaking liquid out of the roots, exudates. And those exudates feed different families of microbes and break down different rocks. For example, a really simple one. Buckwheat is usually in my blends. It's not a solo crop. I don't plant it as a monoculture. But buckwheat, is its exudates, or what its plants leak out, is really good. It's a carbonic acid at bringing phosphorus out of the rock layer. That's how I'm getting my phosphorus. Earthworms are taking this down. You know, There's three types of earthworms, literally. Some that just go horizontal through the soil, some that kind of go on an angle, and some that go straight up and down. I mean, they make better aeration than any tool man can create. You got these three different patterns just working every day. It's free farm labor. They're free. All you got to do is grow a crop to feed them. And so buckwheat is letting out this really mild acid, leaking it out of its roots, which frees up phosphorus for my plants to use. To throw a, a variable on you, got clients that occasionally will burn their fields you have any comments or incorporation of fire in your management yeah i mean if you've got a lot of weeds out there and you don't have these other tools burning is not a bad thing but think about this burning is releasing some nutrients in the smoke primarily nitrogen i want to save all the nitrogen i can p and k will just be deposited right there in the ashes and, and but you're getting rid of organic matter really quickly you're not leaving that mulch layer to feed the worms out there so the number one soil builder on the planet, earthworms, you just took away all their food. So for somebody that is going to burn and do a prescribed fire, what would you do then? Would you, would you establish a, a fire break around your food plots? Yeah, you want to do a fire break. Let's just think about something else about burning. We want to keep that soil cool, right? We don't ever want it naked and hot. When you burn it, you just killed your microbes. Right. I'm I'm going to take a risk. I, you may slap me on the hand, so do that. No, no, do no. that. Do that if I need it. But let's say we're starting from from literal ground zero, and maybe we're going to reclaim an area and try to put it into a food plot. I'm thinking about. Yeah. I'm thinking about a log landing. I'm thinking about uh, an open. Yeah, just cut some timber. Yeah. yeah something some like that. And we've got to get started. Uh, we got to get that first seed in the ground. Uh, we've got to remove. Maybe there, maybe it's grown up. Maybe it's had a season to grow, and there's some woody stems and whatnot. Should we start by disking and smoothing that that soil to get started initially, or is there an alternative so that we don't have to disk? Only time I do that when I prescribe that is you, you had a hardwood area or pine area, whatever it is, logged, and it's really stumpy, and someone destumped it. Hopefully, with the track hoe, track hoes do a lot less damage than a dozer trying to push them out. Uh, and you know, and they put it in burning. A couple tips about this, folks: do not just take that log pile or those dump pile, push it to the side and pile it up. Because all you did was just make a predator condo 
right next to where you want game species to be comfortable feeding. That's exactly all you did. Second thing, those stumps, now, you know, per square inch, don't have any nutrients in them, but a stump, you know, a stump can weigh, you know, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 pounds. 3,000 pounds, that 1% nutrient is a huge amount of fertilizer. So what I do on my, what I have my clients do, and it costs a little bit more, but the benefits are well worth it. We're going to push all those stumps, debris, whatever. And when I say push as lightly as possible into the center of the new food plot. We're going to burn, burn, burn. You won't be able to burn up all the stumps because there's dirt in there. We're going to dig a little hole and we're going to bury them right in the food plot. Because why do I want to take nutrients that a tree took 30 years to gather? It's been mining the soil for 30 years and then push off to the side of the plot and put those nutrients in the predator condo. Logging companies, timber companies have figured this out. You guys are probably old enough. You remember when everyone windrowed, they would have a, a dozer come in to try to make a perfect planting field for a pine stand so they could machine plant. They'd push all the debris up in windrows, and they'd have a windrow debris every 100 yards, 100 yards, 300 yards. And the pine trees, by university research, always grew better the first couple rows from that windrow because all the nutrients just got pushed up there. All the nutrients did. People don't do that much anymore. They're just harvest, leaving the slash lay where it fell, and have hand crews come plant because all that slash is breaking down. And it's, again, just like my mulch, slow-release fertilizer. And the pines will grow much faster, much more profitable, not even counting the expense you're avoiding by pushing all that slash up. I've got a new timber stand. I, you know, I, I, I harvested timber. I've got it de-stumped so I can work it somehow. And when they de-stumped it, they left three-foot holes out there. I'm probably going to have to disc it to get the fruit plot first established. You know, otherwise, it's you know, driving through a minefield of holes out there. Now, if I don't have that and I've just got saplings, maybe it's no pasture that, you know, got pretty weedy and some saplings were coming up in, I'm going to spray it. I'm not, if I mow it, it's a big, thick mess that I can't plant through and seed won't reach the soil. I'm going to spray it, leave that stuff standing. Remember, when you spray stuff, plants are 70% water and that's all going to shrink up and you'll be able to see through it. I'm going to spray it, terminate everything where it's, where that is at. I'm not going to mow it. You don't kill saplings by mowing. Saplings, even two or three years old, have a big root system. You cut them off the top, they're coming right back. You're just top killing the sapling. You're not ground killing it. So I'm going to use herbicide, and I'm going to drill right through that and let all that biomass become worm feed. And just let it go. And then let it go. the following it, spring people, starts over again. Yeah, yeah. And it'll break down a lot that winter. I think people get messed up with this concept some because it doesn't, in what they consider, look pretty. Mm-hmm. Now, the Great Prairie... If you really read, and I hope every outdoorsman does, Lewis and Clark's journal. There are other explorers that wrote beautiful journals too, but Lewis and Clark is the most famous. And any library can get you a copy. The prairie didn't look all groomed like a golf course. It would be tall, short, skinny, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. My food plots now, after years of doing this, are pretty. They're kind of uniform and all that. But the first few years, it looks kind of ragged out there. You're going, man. This doesn't look like a yard. Folks, deer don't live in a yard. Turkeys don't live in a yard. Get over it. Nature is not necessarily pretty. It's just very effective at conserving moisture, conserving nutrients. And if we think about a perfectly groomed yard, there's a lot of inputs there, right? You're using stuff to kill the bad insects. You're putting a lot of fertilizer down. Yards are a major source of pollution. Grant? Last thing to cover really is equipment. You've talked a lot about the crimper um, and we've talked about the drill a good bit, but we see a lot of questions from folks that are wanting to plant food plots without equipment. And I don't think they mean without any, they just mean without any specialized equipment. So, Hey man, I I get it. When Trace and I first married, I, I had a pair of legs a backpack sprayer, and a broadcast cedar that went on my shoulder. I, I get that. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, you can do it. You know, it's not going to be quite as effective because you're not getting that seed placed properly. But the system would be, and it works really good on fall plots. I want to establish even a small high hill food plot. You know, a quarter acre, I got in the middle of the woods with a bow stand there or a blind. I want to establish a summer plot for two reasons. So the weeds don't get rank and produce more weed seeds. And I can get the plants I want to have the desired impact on soil, freeing up this phosphorus, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I'm going to plant my fall crop. Let's say it's this time of year. 
and I have, I, I've burned it off or, you know, however I've done it, I've used herbicide, I've prepared it to plant. I'm going to broadcast my seed blend at a really heavy rate. I use Eagle Seeds Fall Buffalo Blend for that situation. It works great, but whatever you're using, you're going to want some small grains, wheat, rye, oats, or your small grains, not rye grass, never rye grass, cereal rye, huge difference. You want cereal rye, not rye grass. Some annual clovers, some really strong annual clovers, some brassicas. Again, I, I, the, the blend that's worked great for me is the fall buffalo blend. It, it just works. It's got the right blend to do the right stuff for the soil. Uh, and I, if I'm broadcasting, I'm going to put it on at about twice the recommended rate for drilling. Because, again, especially a little pot in the woods, man, squirrels, they'd be running out there with their little cheeks full and going up a tree depositing your seed for winter, literally. I mean, it's amazing how much seed Squirrels can remove turkeys. It's like baiting turkeys. They're coming there like crazy, some birds. And my wife asked me, we used to do a lot of trapping a deer to put collars on and whatnot. How do deer find your bait pile so quickly? And it really stumped me. It doesn't smell that strong, right? And if they don't see the yellow, how they know it's there. How do deer find bait piles so quickly? And I don't mean it's wrong, but I got a PhD in wildlife. I've worked a long time. I thought, I think I know a little bit about this. And my wife she said, well, I guess I know how. The songbirds follow around, so they see it. And, when, you know, the, the cardinals and the birds that would eat grain like that, when they find it, of course, they're singing a lot. And deer recognize that feeding sound of those birds as a source of food they would eat because it's grain. That's absolutely the best explanation I've ever heard of how deer find corn piles or food plot seeds so quickly. That's now, you're gonna see, uh, now you're going to see songbird calls out on the market. You just started the go. trend. There, Everybody's going to be sitting right. in their tree stand, you know. What, is it? what sound is a cardinal? Chirping like a cardinal. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's a, you know, I may do that. But that's a good point. You know, it's like the old feeder repeater, except you got the uh, cardinal call up there. That's, that's a good right. point. Anyway, so birds will find your food plot seed, and, and they tell all the rodents and squirrels, and, you know, it'd be like a dove field in there. So put about twice amount down right before rain or during the rain your fall crop grows. Next spring, it's getting, you know, pretty good size. But more important if you're using this technique is soil temperature for whatever's appropriate for the plant you're planting. And a great website is S-A-R-E, SARE, S-A-R-E. This is a government-funded website that's all about soil health. And, and you can just like, you could put uh, maybe you're planting soybeans or whatever and it will tell you the proper temperature and conditions to plant that crop. And they don't sell anything. There's no bias here. S-A-R-E dot org. Great website for food plotters. Great website. So I know what I'm going to plant. And in the summer, you're going to have some weeds. So it's okay to plant a monoculture like beans or something. So you can use a herbicide. You know, when you mix stuff up, you don't have near the weed pressure, of course, in the, in the fall or winter as you do in the summer. When you mix stuff up, it's tough to find a herbicide that, you know, will protect one and not kill the other. That's just not the way herbicides work. They're very specific. So, or they're not specific at all, like glyphosate, which kills everything except Roundup Ready crops. So I'm going to broadcast my crop into that stand that I've just terminated with glyphosate, my summer crop. And maybe I think I should so small. If I put soybeans in there, deer are going to wear it out. Maybe I'm just planting something like sorghum sedan grass. It's really big and will will outcompete all the weeds and it has a big root structure so I'm improving the soil. And then a little hidey hole food plot, you know, a little traction plot, you're not going to get the full benefit probably of all the soil health improvement. So you may want to add a little fertilizer just to make it sweet so the deer come by and want to eat. Here's the giddy up. The more fertilizer you add, the sweeter the plants will be, the quicker they will eat it up. So everyone says, I want my plants to taste as best as they possibly could. Maybe not. You got a little quarter acre bow hunting spot or turkey strutting spot in the middle of timber. If they eat it up instantly, then you're looking at a bare ground spot. So always remember food plots. This is a really difficult concept. It's not that you have the very best. It's that you have the best in the neighborhood. It's like the old bear hunting story. I don't have to be faster than the bear. I could be faster than my hunting partner. That's right. And the same is true with your food plot. I mean, having the best is great if you got a big field. But if you get a little small, high hill food plot, it needs to be better tasting than the other food resources in the area. But if it's super palatable and you only got a quarter acre, 
three old does are going to come in there at night and wipe it out and you're left with bare ground and weeds to hunt over. So it sounds like what you're saying is that if you're limited on equipment and you do want to get started with this, you can pretty much do it with a backpack sprayer and a, and a, you know, a manual seed spreader. Yep. And, and again, you won't get all the benefits, but you can certainly improve the soil, keep weeds at bay and attract deer. So if somebody is able and, and willing to step up into some specialized equipment, let's, what, the two things I always see, the, the questions are, okay, I've, got an, I've already got an ATV or a UTV, but I don't have a tractor or yep. they don't have either. And they're trying to decide, can I get it done with an ATV, UTV setup, or do I need to get a tractor? At what level, I would say, of acreage, if, if that's even the right way to look at it, when do you see the need for someone to step up into, say, a tractor with three-point hitch or just using an ATV? Because there's some, there's some all-in-one products that, that do everything you're talking about, right? I mean, you well, can get, you can get all, crimpers all the, for UTVs. There are but, crimpers for UTVs. The all-in-ones, you know, I'm, I'm a very open guy, Furminator, whoever they all are they tend to always be based on a disc on front. You're still disturbing soil, which is going to reduce soil quality and cause more weeds to grow. So there's no real all-in-one no-till solution? No. No-till is designed to cut a slit in the soil, drop seed at the right depth, and get out of there with the minimal amount of disturbance. Right. There's no disc on the front and a cultipacker on the back and dropping seed in the middle. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen in the farming world where someone's trying to make a living at all. So in that situation, uh, there is a three-foot drill. Genesis makes a really high-quality no-till drill, three-foot, specifically for, and I want to say this really clearly, a larger ATV. You're burn up a little 250 or 300. Don't, don't do that, folks. You're, you're leave that thing smoking inside, and it'll be a ground blind. You know, but if you've got a really big one, or I would prefer a UTV, it's so much more stable. But, guys, you can buy you know, those 28, 30, 40-horsepower tractors, especially used, for the price of a brand new UTV. Now I have UTVs and I love them. They are awesome tools. We're using them today. We're planting today at my place. But you're saying I'm buying specifically to plant food plots is what I'm saying here. UTVs are not made or transmission. Those internal clutches are not made to start and stop and pull farm equipment around. They can do it. That's not what they're designed to do. So you'd be better to get that little 28 horsepower tractor, 30 horsepower. Those things are getting really inexpensive because there's so many of them these days get that three foot or five foot no-till drill for i'm talking for food plots here not for going hunting on or running truck amazon or whatever and you're fine that that would give you a lot better result and as far as the amount of acreage i think that's what every individual wants to do i've got friends and clients that you know have five acres or 55 acres of food plots that do it both ways uh, i can remember my wife and i planting 40 acres by broadcast I'm surprised she's still married to me, but we, we planted 40 acres of seed right before some rain come in and we walked our full legs off for about a day and a half. I mean, just hard as we could go. And, and in hindsight, you know, the calibration wasn't great. It'd be thick here and thin there. And broadcasting is not a good tool for big food plots because you're just not going to get the right amount of seed where you want it. It's great for a little hidey hole food plot, a little traction food plot. But it's not a good tool if you're planting, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 acres. The smaller tractors are much more efficient. Uh, you can get a drill at Genesis with a wheel kit on it, and you can, you know, it doesn't take much tractor to pull a drill forward. Where it takes a bigger tractor is for the three-point hitch to lift up a drill. That's where it takes more weight on the front and more horsepower and all that stuff. So if you've got a tractor and pre-level land, you can pull a drill forward really easy and safely and uh, with a wheel kit. I prefer drills without a wheel kit because you can turn around much easier, less damage, less compaction to the soil. I compare a drill that has wheels like a tongue mount drill to a conventional lawnmower and a three-point hitch because they're such so much more maneuverable. You just pull up and drop it exactly where you want it. You don't have to back up three times to get it on the right row. A, a, a drill that's a three-point hitch is like a zero turn. You just go anywhere you want and do whatever you want. Grant, I feel like we've covered a ton of ground, uh, pardon the pun today, but, uh, let's recap a little bit. Let's, let's maybe leave folks with, uh, with some action items that they can use if they're going out in the next coming weeks, uh, and are going to give no-till a shot. What's yeah. your, what's your three big action items or, or maybe, you know, three most important things to really remember and think about when it comes to no-till. 
Certainly, you know, with, with no-till, of course, you want to calibrate the drill. And we didn't talk much about that. We don't need to. It's very simple. But don't just assume the drill is set to the seed you want. The last guy that used it, or maybe the last time you used it, you might have been planting a big seed. In the fall, you're planting clover or smaller seed. So calibrate the drill. Just because you have a no-till doesn't mean you can drive like a racer. Drive slow enough so the drill's functioning appropriately. And because you're using a no-till, it doesn't mean there won't be any seed. So you may or may not need a herbicide application. And timing is so important. So whether you're no-tilling or broadcasting or whatever, it's not what any company says, okay, there's a map on a bag and it says you're in this zone, plant X days. That's kind of a, a general range. Look at your conditions, okay? It's Labor Day. I got three days off work, but it's really dry. Don't plant because seeds need moisture. And if they sit there without moisture, seeds are living organisms. They're just dormant, but they're living. They get all stressed out and they won't perform well, even if they do germinate. They will never express their full potential. So make sure there's good conditions, either when you're planting or clearly in the forecast. Don't plant by date on the calendar, but plant by weather and soil conditions. That's critical no matter what planting technique you're using. Grant, I want to ask you to elaborate a little bit on that. Well, you were mentioning earlier talking about when you use herbicide, uh, when that's applicable to you know broadcast those seeds directly into uh, that vegetation that you've just applied herbicide to. I, I think this is one of the challenges with a lot of folks that own or lease land is that they may live three hours from their property and they, they've only got a select number of weekends or that so they think to get things done. If, if you've applied herbicide, and you know there's not uh, doesn't look like there's going to be any any significant rain in the future. Will you do yourself a disservice to wait and broadcast that seed on say the following weekend when you do see some rain coming? Is that is that vegetation going to lay down and and cause a problem with germination? What would you recommend if you just don't have you know full access uh, to your property to be able to get there when you need to get there? Sure, great point. So. Typically, when you apply a herbicide, if you're applying, applying glyphosate, it's again ground, ground neutral. It's not going to hurt the seeds. But you got this weekend, you go spray, and there's really not enough rain and forecast to be comfortable planting. You're good for a week, maybe two weeks. The plants won't necessarily lay down. It's that more weeds will start growing. So I would never want to stretch that one herbicide application more than a couple of weeks because by then little seedling weeds are coming in and they're going to have a head start on the seeds you're going to broadcast. So maybe you spray this week and plant the next week, something like that would be good. Both of those should be dependent upon that weather forecast. Unfortunately, not just the days you got off work, but is there enough moisture? You know, what's going on? Fall seeds, you know, fall crops are all getting ready to plant right now. Those are designed to be planted about 45 days to 60 days before the first frost. And somebody say, well, in South Florida, may not get a frost. But, you know, planting before it starts cooling down and the day length is long enough to stimulate their growth. The plants are all based on day length, how much sunshine they're receiving. Some would do better to be planted in the spring when the days are getting longer. Some, like our cool season crops, are better planted in the fall when day is getting shorter. So, you know, for the average food plot that's built to be planted in the fall, you want to plant it when when you've got about 45 to 60 days until the first frost or, or you know, until it's starting to cool down, there's a break in the weather, so to speak, and when there's adequate soil moisture or there's a good chance of rain in the forecast. Well, Grant, I, uh, I really enjoyed having you on today. I think Clint is probably going to have a hard time. You know, he's going to go to his property. He's going to see a shiny new disc over there, and he's just going to hear your words echoing in his in his brain every time he's, I think you may have hurt his feelings, but. It, you know, the it, good thing is the scrap metal market's really good right now. I'm teasing, <laughs> pleasing. Well, uh, man, I tell you, it's, it's a really interesting research you're doing and not just research and, but actually implementing this stuff and, and recording it over there at Growing Deer. And uh, I re- highly recommend folks, if you're listening, you want more information, head over there. You've, you've covered every question there is to cover, I think, right over there. If folks want to interact with you, is, is Growing Deer the best way for them to get more information? Yeah, shoot you out. They can just go to growingdeer.com and, and they'll find us on YouTube or our website. And of course, we are on uh, Facebook and Instagram, I think under Grant Woods. And just find us under Growing Deer or Grant. And we try to respond to every question. We don't get them all, of course, but we try. So if we can help you with your food plot techniques, please give us a shout and you can learn more at Growing Deer.
Glenn, I've been watching what Grant does over on Growing Deer TV for a number of years and really admire what he's done over there. It's a lot of work he's put into this and I was pretty blown away today. Uh, there, Even though I've, I've watched what he what he does, I, I still learn quite a bit from what he told us. What'd you, what would you, what'd you learn? What was your big takeaway? Well, there was a lot. I'm glad he was on there because it always makes me realize how much I still have to learn, even though I've been hunting my whole life. You know, I'd say the most was the, the heat factor. You know, what he mentioned about, you know, moisture retention and things like that, that really make it seem like once you get into the rhythm of this, you take better great care of your ground and you also don't have to be chasing rain clouds, you know, like a lot of us do a month before hunting season gets here, trying to time it right, things like that. And then on top of everything else, you know, you get free fishing bait, you know, reminded me. <laughs> don't mess with those worms now. <laughs> I used to go dig them up with my granddad before we'd go start chasing the catfish in the brim. So it, uh. That brought back some good memories. Yeah, that was pretty cool how he talked about how the worms are, you know, they're your workers. You know, they're they're doing the tillage for you. You don't even, you don't have to. I never, never even really thought of it that way. And man, I tell you what I like, you know, we talk a lot on here about investing in land and making that land be worth something more in the future. You think about what he was saying about how much vermiculture costs. If you add six inches of topsoil to your food plots, imagine how much more that piece of dirt is worth. We talk a lot about land prices per acre and things of that nature. That's a tremendous increase in value uh, if you do plan to sell that property someday or you want to pass it on to someone someday that you've improved the soil. Uh, that's that's a real investment in your property. Not only that though, I mean for me it was just I mean why wouldn't you if you can if you can decrease the amount of money it costs to create wildlife habitat and at the same time decrease the amount of pollution that you're putting into the environment and save yourself time. Seems like a no brainer for me. There's a learning curve, but I don't know. I'm a believer. That's for sure. Yep. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed today's show. That's going to wrap it up this week. As always, if you'd like us to email you the show, just email us over at pros at landhunting.com and please subscribe, rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. We sure appreciate the reviews and and the subscribes, and uh, we'll see you guys next week. This week's show has been brought to you by Joe Baya and Clint Flowers, members of the top producing team at National Land Realty, the fastest growing and most innovative land brokerage in the nation. With hunting season right around the corner and interest rates at historic lows, now is a great time to buy or sell land. If you want to learn more, shoot us an email at pros at landhunting.com or call us at 855-NLR-LAND.